Forget social, forget television. Marketing is just humans telling humans something's awesome. (laughs) And so that's really how we built the brand early on. At the end of the day, how do you just get humans to get excited to tell another human? I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Michelle Cordero Grant. Michelle started her fashion career working on loungewear and bras and was previously a senior merchant for Victoria's Secret. But in 2016, she left to launch her own direct-to-consumer underwear and bra company, Lively. And by 2019, Lively was acquired for $105 million. Now, Lively also makes swimwear, loungewear, and activewear. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Nice intro too. Thank you. (laughs) I I love the intros. I'm like, I get to brag about this person and then ask them questions. This is great setup. Before we get into the conversation, we like to warm up with a lightning round. So we get to know you a little bit better. Quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Love it. Ready. What was your first job? Rita's Italian Ice, 475, all the ice you can eat. I also worked at an Italian ice place <laughs> and it was a very fun summer job, but I felt like by the end of it, I definitely had some like carpal tunnel going on. Thousand percent. Thousand percent. Yes. Do you have any secret hobbies or skills? I would say figuring things out. I'm a puzzle solver. That's good. Do you actually do puzzles as a hobby? No, I don't. I don't either. I'm like secret no skills. Oh, I can skim read really well. Okay. That is that that is good for this podcast. Very on brand. Finish the sentence. What best describes your work day working nine till blank? Working nine till whenever and whatever it takes. What's one word a direct report would use to describe you? An extroverted introvert. It's not one word, but I would say that or casual, very casual. Okay. Are you an inbox zero person? No, I have so many emails. It's really embarrassing. What is your biggest guilty pleasure? Nonsense television. That's very colorful and happy. Gossip Girl, Emily in Paris. I mean, the more colorful and easygoing, the better. I also fall into that. What's the last thing you binge watched? Emily in Paris season two. Same. I just finished. I'm ready for it to come back next season. What is the most used app on your phone? Google Analytics. And then I would say text. I try to stay off Instagram. Do you succeed at staying off of Instagram? I do. I probably only go on once a day. Okay. That's very impressive. I am shocked by that answer. I, mine yeah. is, is not even close to that. Max too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's get into it. In your earlier part of your career, you had a number of finance internships. And you even went to law school for a a hot minute. None of it seemed to stick. What was your process of elimination like? How did you end up finding what you wanted to do? Yeah, you know, I am so fortunate that I'm the daughter of two Indian immigrant parents that created this incredible life of opportunity here in the United States. And so 
I also grew up in a household where it was doctor, lawyer, investment banker as indicators of success. So once I knocked out finance and realized I don't really love the intangible, I need something more tangible and direct impact, I moved on to law. And then I realized I'm very competitive from a law perspective. I wasn't going to do the areas that I felt like I was going to impact families and humans. I was going to be in corporate law fighting to be at the top of my class. So in between finance and my two week stint in law school, I actually said to my parents, I'm like, I just want to really get into fashion. I just want to try it. I will take my LSATs when I move to New York. And I literally couldn't really get a job in fashion in New York. I was going to college job fairs in New York that I did not attend. Did you just sneak in? Yeah. I would literally go on the internet and be like, oh, Rutgers is having a job fair. UConn's having a job fair. And I would just walk in, you know, casually like I belonged. And that's actually how I got my first job in fashion, which was Federated Merchandising Group. I just kind of lucked out and fell into it. What I love about your story is two things. The first is just that you were like, okay, you know, what was accepted in my house is kind of like doctor, lawyer, investment baker, and you go to law school for two weeks and how you look at it now is, you know, this is what I learned. Was your family that supportive at the time or were your friends and family like, she's a total flake? (laughs) You know, it's funny because I realized in that experience that I was living a life of assumptions. I never had a conversation with my parents that was like, you need to be a doctor, lawyer, and investment banker. I just assumed based on my surroundings, right? So when I called my dad two weeks into law school and said, dad, like you're gonna have to take that law school t-shirt off. I'm going back to New York to work in fashion. He's like, well, we just want you to be happy. I'm like, seriously, (laughs) that's it? (laughs) So that's when things kind of changed. Carly and I used to sneak into conferences all the time because we like couldn't pay and we weren't really invited. So I love that you were sneaking into these job fairs. Where do you think that hustle came from? And I'm going to call it like a hustle and a drive instead of just being sneaky because I think it's a tactic that shows that. Did that come from watching your parents? Is that all you? You know, I think subconsciously it came from my parents, you know, knowing that they came here literally by themselves, not knowing anyone. My parents met in college. And, and then moved to, I grew up in the sticks of Pennsylvania where there was one Indian family pretty much. And it was mine. I realized that I I had a gift, right? Where I was given the opportunity. And so I kind of found this determination. I don't know where it came from. And I still have it to this day where when I fixate on something, I get really fixated. It's like an OCD kind of thing. So in that moment in my life, I didn't want a job around Pittsburgh or Western Pennsylvania. I wanted to be in New York at all costs. And when you were making that change, whether it was going from finance to law school or then law school into fashion, did you have a plan in place for that next step? Or was it kind of like, I know this isn't for me, so I just need to move on? Yes, yes. My plan pre-college was go to college, work in finance, get married by 27, have my kids at 28. It was very played out. Then I realized in these experiences, actually, I don't know a lot about a lot. And so really what I want to do is experience as much as possible and use process of elimination to figure out where I want to be. And that's kind of where fashion came back into play. I loved being at Federated Merchandising Group, learning about product development, And then I realized the next step was planning. I'm like, I don't like planning. So let me just keep trying to get exposure to figure out where I want to be. Not planned. I 
would not say I was strategic at all. (laughs) So let's fast forward. You end up at Victoria's Secret. And at the time, it was dominating the undergarments market. I kind of hate that name, undergarments. I'm like, it feels like an old name. But it's also an organization that has come under fire for its culture and for body shaming. You're there. You're obviously entrepreneurial. You're trying to figure out what's working, what's not. What did it start to dawn on you that you didn't necessarily feel empowered by their mission? Yeah. You know, I was there in the... uh mid 2000s, right? 2008-ish, 2009. And, and I went there because I geeked out on brand. And when you think about a, a strong brand, Victoria's Secret, worldwide recognition, the time, 30 to 40% market share, insane operating income. And so it was like where everyone bought bras at the time. It's like, oh, I'm going to go bra shop. It wasn't even discussed where you were going. You were going to Victoria's Secret, right? Everyone. I was there for almost five years. And I was just exhausted by putting on stilettos every day, putting on a push-up. Like I was putting on this, it was almost like a costume that I would go to work in and then I would take it all off and feel like myself again. And then the next day I'd get up and put it all back on again, right? And I started to feel that I did not look like Candace Swapnell or all those other beautiful supermodels. I didn't feel great about that, right? And that started to get weird. So I would say the, uh, the game changer, which sounds a little silly, was my husband getting married. Like, this guy loves me for all my flaws. And that's really interesting, right? So why? Oh, because uniquely, him and I are a fit for some reason. And this idea of human uniqueness like dawned on me, like, where's the brand? Where's the brand for that, that celebrates that? On one hand, that is like the most romantic founding story. <laughs> And on the other hand, I'm like, you are such a type A founder that like you're falling in love, you get married and you're like, but why? But why? (laughs) You couldn't just let it happen. This was, I mean, obviously a, a total turning point for your life, but I love that. So talk to me about having this experience and then actually the decision to quit. Yeah. You know, things started to annoy me and bother me. Like maternity was not a word that we were embracing. Size inclusivity was just kind of always tossed to the side and not really entertained. And then social media and mobile were also like not really focused on. I'm like, what are we doing here? We're not evolving with society. And that just really started to to irk me. I also saw my leaders and my mentors and the women that I really respected killing it at work, like crushing it, but their personal lives were not. And I'm like, holy, I'm going to, I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose just like them. So I have to find another way. And so that was really it for me. It was like, well, I can always come back, right? What's the greatest downside? I may have to take three steps back and work my way back up, but not knowing what could be really was the risk, right? So So I quit. And, you know, the part that people don't realize is I didn't quit and just start lively. I quit and worked for a startup. You know, I went and just met with everyone I could. I would kind of joke around and say, I crossed 14th Street and just started meeting with people. (laughs) And I found my way to to Ben Lear at Thrillist, who had just bought a flash sale company. Because at that time, Gill and flash sale was it. Like that was it. Right. And so he welcomed me into that atmosphere and said, yeah, we need someone to do merchandise. And I was like, great. I need to learn how startups work. I heard about when you met your first investor. And this is 
fast forwarding, I think, to when you were then thinking about starting Lively and he has to see your business plan, which you didn't have. But you actually made one and learned about it in a matter of days. How did you do it? And also, side note, Carly and I did the same thing. And we bought her dad dinner so that we could tell him the inputs to put in Excel. And I still remember to this day, that was like the most like dad, daughter doing our homework in the real world. And he was like, well, what is your, you know, when are you going to break even? When are you guys going to make money? What's your salary going to be? And we're like, we don't know. Just please type. Yes. <laughs> keep, keep going. Keep going. First yeah. of all, the dad, daughter. I mean, my dad basically wrote my law school essay with me. The best bonding moments. So I had my daughter, Lydia, at the time. And I said to my husband, I'm like, I'm supposed to write a business plan, question mark. I need you to take her out of this apartment for 48 hours. And I'm like, business plan for dummies, examples of business plans, da, da, da. And then I kind of realized, I'm like, wait, hold on. This meeting is going to be a confidence game. I bet you they're not even going to look at this business plan if I just believe in this business plan. So then I was like, simple business plan. And just started to like strip out all the formulas, all the tabs from all these different options. And like, let's make something that I truly understand and go in with that. And that 48 hours, boom. (laughs) So talk to me about starting, taking a, a half step back, starting Lively. You know what wasn't working out there. You know what you wanted to create. You had experience from you know, working for the big player in the field, you had startup experience. When you think back to starting Lively, what was the differentiator? What was important to you at that point? Yeah. You know, I mean, a very honest story is I knew I wanted to create something different in this category. I honestly didn't know what, you know, up until even after I got the funding, like I remember being on an airplane, going to a bachelorette party in LA and sitting next to my friend, Amy, and being like, all right, I'm going to start this brand. Doesn't have a name. I don't actually have a concept, but I know there's something missing. And we were just hashing it out all the way across the country and all these ideas about what was missing. Honestly, the exercise of just hashing things out with anyone that's willing to listen got me to the differentiator, which was, okay, my goal is human uniqueness, right? So what's missing? Oh, interesting. We contour our bodies to the bra. The bra doesn't contour their body to us. And that's what needs to change. So what do people wear that does that? Sports bras. And I found a statistic that 60% of the time women wear sports bras, they're not working out. They're just wearing them because they contour their bodies and they're comfortable. Is that why I wear them? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Same. (laughs) That's why I was wearing them. (laughs) That's actually really funny because I never thought about that. And I'm almost, I'm always like, why do I wear this? Right. It's like the difference between putting on a blazer and a sweatshirt, right? The sweatshirt hugs you. Yeah. The blazer, you're like, ugh. (laughs) So we were kind of geeking out on this idea of like, oh, right. We wear sports bras because they're more comfortable. We wear swimwear, more comfortable. Then you put on the bra and you're like, ugh, here I am again. (laughs) That's really the light bulb. And the other differentiator was deciding to do flat pricing. How did you go that route? So after working for these incredible corporations, these corporations were incredible, but complicated. And the majority of the time there, we were just trying to get to answers. So conceptually, I had two ideas. One was I was this girl from Pennsylvania that would take her lunch money and go to Fifth Avenue and walk the street, but couldn't buy anything. 
And so if I could create a brand that felt Fifth Avenue, felt Net-A-Porter, but was accessible to America, that would feel like a huge win and an impact personally. Professionally, in a startup, you have to get to answers quick. You have to be able to be flexible and agile and move with what the business is telling you. So it was like one price point. You're not dealing with markdowns and all sorts of nonsense. You're going to get right to the answer. You can really understand the heartbeat. Ignorant though, because not every bra, you do not pay a factory the same price, let me tell you. But why not try? <laughs> I mean, when you're starting out and every dollar always counts, but especially in the beginning, it's really counting. How did you think about balancing customers probably loving this flat fee pricing with the profit margins that you were seeing? Yeah. I mean, look, you always give a thumb in the air on a weighted average. You're like, hopefully these are you know, 60% of what sells and this is 40% and, and we come out clean. For us, it was actually the opposite, but I was very strategic. This was the one smart thing that I did is that when I did bring on an investor, it wasn't a typical investor, it was a supplier. And so I met with one of the largest suppliers in um, the lingerie space, a manufacturer for Walmart. And so they have economies of scale. And so my concept was, I'm not going to hit the margin that I want to hit out the gate, but I'm also going to learn like what this business actually wants. And so in tandem, as I get to economies of scale, negotiate, strategize, and shift. And that's what, that's what we've done to this date. So in the first 45 days, you had over $100,000 in sales. Is that what you were expecting? No, no. We sold out in two weeks. And literally on launch day, when we saw the orders coming in, I took off like my launch day outfit and ran to New Jersey with our entire team and just started packing. I feel like people don't always think about that, which is like, you want to have this huge launch day, but you're also at that point, a really small team and you don't want to disappoint people. Yeah. So how did you guys work through it? Did you then stop taking orders? Did you hire a bunch of people? We were so naive. I mean, we, we had this like really cute idea that we were going to write a handwritten note to every single customer. And for like 24 hours, we're writing these handwritten notes, like, sweating and just our, you know, when you have that pencil knot on your finger, like when you're doing homework, we had that. Finally, by day two, around 8 PM, we're like, this isn't going to work. Like we just need to get to the product to the customers. So we did two things that now looking back were really interesting. One, we were just humans about it. So we started emailing the customers and saying like, Hey, we sold out. It's not going to be three days before we ship. It's going to be like 30. And they were like, no problem. Like your first customers love you no matter what, as long as you're really honest and human. The second thing we did is we were really in close contact with our supplier, right? So we're like, crank it out, keep going, keep going. And we actually took a sample room. So anyone that works in fashion and manufacturing knows you have these big factories and then you have a sample room. That's where you make your prototypes. We took a sample room and made that a factory. So everyone was getting a bespoke bra (laughs) if you ordered from Lively was not profitable, but it was a way to satisfy humans because can't recreate lightning, can't recreate it. I love the handwritten notes. In the early days, you know, every email that would come in would just go straight to us because we were the whole company. And we would respond back to everyone. And it would say, because, you know, I would be doing it on the subway. I'd be doing it while I'm walking, you know, sent from my iPhone. And I remember people writing back like, wow, 
you know, that's so cool. Thanks for being a real person. And other people were like, you're so full of shit. Like that was a really good marketing tactic, putting scent from my iPhone. And I was like, I'm, I'm not that smart. That would be a good <laughs> marketing tactic, but it does go such a long way. Just responding to your early customers. Yeah. What did you, you know, when you were starting, there was such a boom in the D2C space. Yeah. What did you take from other brands that you saw working? And then what were things that you guys really wanted to think outside the box on? Sure. I would say the one thing that was really pivotal for us was Harry's Razor Company in 2011 did the Refer a Friend campaign. And I remember that they got 100,000 emails through this campaign and they open sourced that code. So fast forward to 2016, I'm like, how are we going to build an email list? I'm like, oh, Harry's had 100,000. Like, let's try and get 20,000. Let's take their open source code. And so we did, and we launched this program a month before our quote unquote launch date, which was April 1st. March 1st, email refer a friend campaign, splash page is all that exists in the company. And so we emailed 250 people, everybody we knew, right? And that night we got 500 and we went to happy hour. And we're like, cheers, we're like on pace. We're gonna do this four weeks, 20,000 emails, it's happening. And the next morning we had like a thousand lunchtime, 5,000 late afternoon, 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 that night, 90,000 emails and our servers crashed. Nothing was responsible at all. This I'm like sweating at this point. I'm like, we just gave away our company because you're giving away credit. You have no idea like what's going out, what's happening. And the next day we had 133,000 emails and 300,000 sessions globally. So we're like, okay, developers, I'm like, someone hacked this. this is so fake. It's not real. There's a bot. They're like, Michelle, it's real. These are all real sessions. I'm like, turn on every customer service channel. We have to know why. We don't have anything to sell, but we have to know why. And that, you know, gave us our early marketing for that whole month. All we did was write down everything everyone was saying and just listening and asking questions. And these girls, I remember in Australia, meanwhile, we're planning to ship to the United States. Google Analytics, the whole map's blue. These girls in Australia were like, this girl in my class, she got an email from Lively. Where's mine? And we're like, we don't know. The whole thing crashed. But why do you care? And she's like, that image, those words, like finally, you someone gets us. And all it said was inspired by wild hearts and boss brains. I love that. Meet Lively, earn free product. <laughs> what I love about that too is it, when you started obviously community marketing was was a big way you got off the ground and also influencers both of these things now when you're starting a brand you're starting everything that's where a lot of people start it's it's almost become like 101 right how do you think about that space today yeah yeah so we did not do paid influencer marketing back then we were not the concept was we don't want to pay people to wear a product and share a product we want to organically just get people that really feel something and are compelled to post it. And our thesis was, you know, I wasn't the cool girl from Pennsylvania. And I bet there's a ton of women like that in these middle America states, but have megaphones, like in a cul-de-sac, at a pickup line, in a club, at a church, wherever. Let's find them. And so we would scan content for women that we knew were like socially savvy, like, oh, they follow SoulCycle or Sweet Green, da 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 and they can create content. Like, let's reach out to them. They have 200, 300 followers, a thousand followers, but their feeds demonstrate they care about content and they want to share, right? Because that is marketing 
at its core, right? Forget social, forget television. Marketing is just humans telling humans something's awesome. (laughs) And so that's really how we built the brand early on. So today I feel the same way, right? It's like paid marketing is definitely part of D2C life, right? But at the end of the day, how do you just get humans to get excited to tell another human? So you build this, you sell it. What does that feel like today? (laughs) Well, you know, when I built it and I sold it, it felt like my child was three and went to college. It was actually pretty heartbreaking, which is, sounds really not what people want to hear, right? Because it's a glorious, huge, huge, very fulfilling thing that happened, right? We're so proud and we're so lucky and we're so all here to pay it forward on the experience of building and selling lively. Three years later, now I can see this was the path that was supposed to happen that I never expected, but Lively's here to stay. It's owned by a company that has very, is very strong, is very profitable, and cares about its mission, which is passion, purpose, and confidence. So it really feels like kind of one of your earlier questions was, did you plan for this? No, no, we were not planning to sell Lively. It wasn't even for sale. But we went with it and it ended up being the best thing that could happen to Lively and and to the Grant family. Okay. We've got a listener question from Sarah. She wants to know, what was the most intimidating thing for you when you were starting your business and how did you overcome it? I would say being a founder, you know, putting yourself out there was really scary for me. I was, I didn't even have a Facebook account when I started Lively. I was just not on social media at all. So Literally, my first full-time hire created my social handle on Instagram at the Michelle Grant. She's like, you gotta, you gotta get out there. And I also was pregnant with my second child. Didn't feel awesome about myself, but you have to be there for your community, for your team, for your board, for the press. And that was really hard for me. Extroverted introvert. When I would be in an event that had like more than 10 people, I was like fighting to be in the back, like organizing inventory. <laughs> I get it. I'm also pregnant with my second child. I am also an extroverted introvert. And it's tough to, you know, I think what's interesting about founders today is you need to use every competitive edge. And so certainly if you're a woman creating a brand that's going to resonate with women like her, you want to use it and you want to be out there. If it's going to be a value to the company at the same time, that's not your day job. And it, it's really uncomfortable. How did you navigate that? Yeah, I think anything that's uncomfortable, you should force yourself to do it more. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, I like to run every morning, but it started with me running like a quarter mile, then a half a mile, and then a mile. And now I just, like yesterday, I sprinted for 10 minutes just to get like some endorphins going, right? Same thing with anything else that you're intimidated by. So for me, it was like, I just had to keep putting myself out there. And, you know, social media doesn't come naturally at all for me. And so founder chats is something I do, which is an Instagram live that I committed to because it forces me to get on a live and have a conversation. And now I love it. I love it. But I know that like posting and doing all that stuff all day isn't for me. Right. So I try to be, you know, what I am, which is type A and strategic. It's like, this is, this is when I'm going to be on social media and this is what I'm going to commit to. And the rest is for me and my family and my business. Okay. Final question. Who is someone else we should have on this show? Ooh, gosh, such a great question. I mean, your show has had so many badass humans, but 
You know, I just did a live with Cindy Eckert who created the female Viagra and sold it for a billion dollars and then got it back because she didn't like how it was marketed. Pretty incredible. Michelle, thank you so much. Congratulations on everything. We loved hearing about your story. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 